0: The Atonement of Christ, a series that I've entitled, Oh, Perfect Redemption, borrowing from the lyrics of another great hymn, To God Be the Glory. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every every believer, the promise of God. And we have been asking the question, given that Christ's atonement was a perfect redemption, that there is not the least imperfection or failure in the work of Christ on the cross, we've been asking, what can we conclude about that controversial question about the extent of the atonement? For whom did Christ die? And our answer has been that a perfect redemption must necessarily be a particular redemption. And why is that? Because if the divine design of the atonement is as first 1 Timothy one fifteen says actually to save sinners, and if, as job forty two two says no purpose of god 's can be thwarted, well then everyone for whom Christ died must be saved, an atonement of unlimited power and perfect efficacy. "...must necessarily be limited in its extent to those who actually enjoy its benefits, to those who are actually saved by it. And who are they? Only those whom the Father chose in eternity past, to whom the Holy Spirit eventually regenerates and grants saving faith." And so far in this series, we've had uh, two messages on the design of the atonement, showing how the triune God's intention for the atonement is exclusively salvific and therefore points to a particular redemption. And then in our last two messages, we've been discussing the nature of the atonement. And we've said that it is most fundamentally a work of penal substitution where Christ pays the penalty for our sins by becoming a substitute for us. But then we observe that Scripture characterizes this penal substitutionary atonement according to four key motifs expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. And the argument has been that given how Scripture defines each of those designations for the atonement, we are right to conclude that the nature of the atonement is perfectly effective, perfectly efficacious. It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. And we've seen that Christ's atonement was an expiatory sacrifice, an offering to God that really does take away our sin and our guilt as the fulfillment of the Passover and of the day of atonement. Hebrews 9.26 says, now once at the consummation of the ages, he, that is Jesus, our great high priest, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, this is what the cross, as an expiatory sacrifice, has accomplished. It did not make sin put awayable, it put away sin. And that means that He did not put away the sin of those who bear their own sins and perish under the weight of them for eternity in hell. He didn't put away the sins of those whose sins are not actually put away. No, Isaiah 53, 12 says, he himself bore the sin of many. And then the last time uh, we saw that Christ's atonement was a propitiatory sacrifice as well. And we dug into the scripture and found out that propitiation means the efficacious satisfaction of divine wrath. Because God is holy, His response to human sin is to be justly stirred to holy anger. His holiness constrains him to hate all unholiness. And because God is righteous, he must exercise that wrath against sin. He must punish sin wherever he finds it. And so if we're going to be saved, if we're going to escape that punishment, then we need God's wrath against us to be appeased, to be satisfied, to be extinguished by some just means of satisfaction. And the atoning death of Christ is that very propitiation. Romans three twenty four and 25, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so you see, by receiving in himself the full exercise of the Father's wrath against the sins of his people, the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied the Father's righteous anger against sin. And in doing so, he turned away God's wrath from us who, were it not for our substitute, were bound to suffer under that wrath for ourselves for eternity. And the point was that if Jesus' death is a propitiation, if the atonement turns away wrath for those for whom it's accomplished, well then God's wrath against those sinners that Jesus died for is extinguished forever. For that wrath ever to be roused again would mean that the propitiation Christ made was insufficient to satisfy the demands of God's justice. But that is unthinkable. The father was perfectly pleased by the sacrifice of the son and so there is no wrath left for God to execute upon those for whom Christ has died as a propitiation. And that is all of our hope. The father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. But since we know that many do suffer the wrath of God for their sins. It becomes plain that for them, Jesus was not a propitiation because the wrath of God remains upon them. And so you see, we can't have the the, ra- the, the wrath-satisfying, propitiatory death of God be efficacious on the one hand, secure all our hope on the one hand, and then say, well, it extends to those who do have the wrath of God abiding on them for eternity. What we propose to take to, to give with the hand of, hey, it's for everybody, we would have to take away from the idea that it's perfectly efficacious because there are some for whom it would be offered that it wasn't effective. But what did we find out last week? The great high priest of the new covenant last week, but the last time I was with you, the great high priest of the new covenant, Hebrews 2.17 made propitiation for the sins of the people, that is the people of God, his brethren, the text says, his, the children whom the Father had given him. So that is where we've been. But man's sin has not only incurred guilt and aroused God's wrath, that genuine guilt and that impending wrath has effected and become the ground of an enmity, a hostility between God and man. And this alienation is pictured vividly throughout the Scriptures. In Genesis 3.8, after Adam and Eve had sinned, the text says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now that is one of the most sad verses, the most painful verses in all of the Bible. The word for presence in Genesis three eight is literally the word face. It it seems that it was a regular occurrence for the holy presence of God to be moving about in the Garden of Eden, and that it would have been normal for God to have face to face communion with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. They would hear the sound of God walking in the garden and would say, is Yahweh coming? Is now time for more face-to-face fellowship with our loving and beautiful creator? Amen, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? And yet after they sinned, that joyful, eager anticipation, instead of that, their immediate instinct was to hide themselves from the delight of their eyes, to avoid fellowship with the source of all satisfaction. Sin had alienated God from man and eventually they were driven out of Eden, expelled from the paradise of God's holy presence and then had that paradise guarded by angels wielding a flaming sword. Sin separates man from God. The prophet Isaiah comments on that broken relationship when he says in chapter 59, verse 2 of his prophecy, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. See, we who were created for intimate friendship with our Creator, we have become his enemies. Romans 5.10 describes our natural sinful state as enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says that we are alienated from God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Romans 8.7, Paul says the mind set on the flesh, which is to say the fleshly human mind in its natural state, is hostile to God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. (coughs) And so what a miserable condition this is. Man's sin is in mortal conflict with God's holy justice. And the result is that man is not only hostile toward God, but God is also hostile toward man. his wrath abides on those who are by nature children of wrath and that wrath will break over them unless the ground of that righteous hostility is done away with and it's precisely here in the depth of our need that the perfect redemption of Christ meets us with saving power Scripture does not only describe the atonement as an expiatory sacrifice that takes away sin and guilt. It does not only describe the atonement as a propitiation that satisfies God's righteous wrath against us. But because of those realities, Scripture also characterizes the atonement as a work of reconciliation. Reconciliation whereby... The ground of the enmity and hostility and alienation between God and man is removed and peace is accomplished. I wonder if you noticed that as we sang the chorus to Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sin, expiation. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, propitiation. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, reconciliation. Reconciliation. You see, those first two realities are glorious. Blood has to wash away our sin and our guilt. The father's wrath must be completely satisfied. But now something amazing happens. Now the judge does not just dismiss the case against the criminal. The judge brings the criminal home and seats him at his table and makes him a member of the family so that where there was no relationship, at least no relationship worth talking about, now there is a relationship of love and reconciliation and fellowship and communion. By his propitiatory sacrifice, by the expiatory bearing of our guilt, Christ does away with the ground of the enmity between God and men the guilt of sin and the wrath of God and overcomes that alienation by accomplishing peace in its place. And so Paul says in the verse Honey read for us earlier, Colossians 1, 21 and 22, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The verse just before that, Colossians 1.20, says that he has made peace through the blood of his cross. And in a real sense, reconciliation is the most ultimate way to speak of Christ's perfect redemption because it accomplishes the ground of the peace with God that Romans 5.1 says we enjoy through our justification. Because of Christ's atonement, we who were separated from the God we were created to know and worship will be restored to loving fellowship with him. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the judicial reality of the cross. Christ pays the penalty of our sin as our substitute, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. But then the next phrase tells us the why of the atonement. Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. See, that's what salvation is about. That is the goal, restoring us to the awe-satisfying, unspeakably glorious God that our sin cut us off from. We celebrate propitiation. We celebrate redemption and justification and forgiveness and freedom from punishment. But all of those glorious doctrines just get stuff out of the way so that we can get to him. If you could have wrath satisfied, but not have him, if you could be redeemed and justified, but not have him, if you could be forgiven and be freed from punishment, but not have him, there would be no heaven. God is what makes heaven heaven. We we have access to the Father, Ephesians two eighteen says, in whose presence is fullness of joy, Psalm 16, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. <clears throat> what makes the gospel good news is not simply that we're freed from punishment or that we don't feel guilty anymore or that we get to see our friends and family in heaven. No, the bottom of why the gospel is good news is because it reconciles us to God that makes paradise, paradise, paradise. Our sin had cut us off from this magnificent treasure, from this ocean of delight. And the cross of Christ overcomes the alienation and the hostility that exists between us and God and purchases purchases the reconciliation that brings us back to him. And it happens by his enduring our alienation in our place. And so reconciliation is a treasure. It is another glorious facet in the brilliant diamond of the atonement that merits our contemplation. And so this morning, we will study the atonement as a reconciliation. And like we've been doing, we'll undertake that study in two broad parts. Nature and extent. First, we'll ask the question, we'll examine the nature of reconciliation from Scripture, how it is the effectual work of God through the cross of Christ, whereby he removes the ground of the enmity or hostility between God and man. What is that ground? Sin. And then when man receives that work of reconciliation, our relationship to God is transformed from alienation to communion and fellowship. And then secondly, in light of what the Bible says reconciliation is, we'll examine the extent of reconciliation and see how, like expiation, like propitiation, reconciliation is also particular, limited to the elect alone. Well, first, let's look at the nature of reconciliation. There are at least three key passages in the New Testament that define the doctrine of reconciliation for us, and we read the first one a moment ago, Colossians 1, 20 to 22. We won't read it again, but we'll go to Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Romans 5, 10 and 11, where Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And then second Corinthians chapter five is another text, second Corinthians five verses eighteen and nineteen, where Paul And then you don't have to turn there, but there's also a passage in Ephesians 2 where Paul speaks of reconciling both Jews and Gentiles in one body to God through the cross, by it, by the cross, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father." So, what do we learn from these passages? Well, at least three characteristics of the biblical doctrine of, of the atonement as reconciliation emerge from these passages. Number one, it's evident that reconciliation is a work of God and not man. Reconciliation is a work of God accomplished in Christ through the efficacy of his atoning death. Consider how consistently these verses we've just read name God as the subject of the action of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. God reconciled us. The next verse, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the the world to himself. He's the reconciler. Colossians 1.22, though you were alienated, hostile, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you. God is the subject of those sentences and not man. Man is the object in those sentences, not God. This means that sinful human beings do not undertake to achieve reconciliation with God. Everywhere scripture speaks of reconciliation, God is the active reconciler and man passively receives reconciliation from God. Again, Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, while we were continuing in open rebellion from God, uh, against God, persisting in hostility against him, while that was happening, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That is the passive voice which means the action is done to us, not performed by us. And then the next verse, Romans 5.11 says, Through Christ we have now received the reconciliation. And so this ought to be plain. Reconciliation is a work of God and not man. Man does not accomplish reconciliation. Man does not even cooperate with God to bring about reconciliation. God doesn't volley reconciliation up only for man to spike the ball down. God does not throw an alley pass only for man to slam it home. God is the reconciler. Reconciliation is what man receives as a gift of God's sovereign grace in his unspeakable mercy. And patience. Second characteristic of reconciliation that we observe from these texts is that it is a finished work of Christ on the cross. A finished work. And this is really important for us to understand because it's not quite what we think of when we speak of reconciliation. As we've said before, there is mutual alienation between God and man. And so when we say that reconciliation between God and man was accomplished on the cross, it sounds like we're saying everyone for whom Christ died became believers in 30 AD. But of course, that's not true. We didn't exist in 30 AD and we come into the world hostile to God, alienated and engaged in evil deeds until he grants us the gifts of repentance and faith. It is only when sinners believe in Christ that it can be said, as in Romans 5.11, we have now received the reconciliation. But Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So notice, reconciliation was accomplished by Christ's death in and of itself. And it was accomplished by Christ's death while we were still his enemies. So this means, friends, that Scripture distinguishes Christ's accomplishment of our reconciliation on the one hand and our reception of that reconciliation that he accomplished. Can you see that in Romans 5? We were reconciled to God through Christ's death And when did he die? 2,000 years ago. But verse 11, when God grants faith, we are said to have now received the reconciliation. We have to understand this. Christ's work of reconciliation was finished and accomplished on the cross, but it is received by and applied to the believing sinner at conversion. And so if someone were to ask you, when were you reconciled to God? I think your natural inclination would be to say, oh, when I repented and believed the gospel when I was this many years old. But no, that's when you received the reconciliation. When were you reconciled? Answer, the day Christ died. See, your faith does not reconcile you to God. Christ's death reconciles you to God. Again, Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Colossians 1.20, God reconciled all things to himself. How? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through faith? No, through death. Whose death? Christ's Death. Sinners are reconciled to God through Christ's death and not through their faith. After all, reconciliation refers to the putting away of the ground of the enmity between God and man. And again, what is the ground of that enmity? It is sin. And sin is not put away by the sinner's faith. Sin is put away by the Savior's death. And so the Bible scholar Leon Morris in his classic work on the atonement, the apostolic preaching of the cross, wrote this, that reconciliation was wrought on the cross before there was anything in man's heart to correspond. Another commentator said reconciliation was finished in Christ's death. Paul did not preach a gradual reconciliation. He preached what the old divines used to call the finished work. He preached something done once for all. And then still another commentator wrote this, the work of reconciliation in the sense of the New Testament is a work which is finished and which we must conceive to be finished before the gospel is even preached. And so we need to distinguish, take these words down, between reconciliation accomplished and reconciliation applied. But much like the persons of the Trinity or the two natures of Christ, though we distinguish between reconciliation accomplished and reconciliation applied, we can never separate those two. And so that brings us then to a third point concerning the nature of reconciliation. It's a work of God. It is a finished work of Christ on the cross. Third, reconciliation accomplished never fails to issue in reconciliation applied. Scripture never suggests that reconciliation might be objectively accomplished for those to whom it is not subjectively applied. No, everyone whom Christ reconciles to God through his death on the cross eventually comes to receive that reconciliation through God-given faith in him. Yes, there might be a gap of time between those events, Right unless you were believing in Christ at the crucifixion there in 30 AD there must be a gap of time but that gap of time does not serve to undermine the the one following from the other An application must necessarily follow from accomplishment and it would have to be that way wouldn't it Christ intends his atonement to purchase saving benefits precisely so that they may be applied, precisely so that they may save sinners, so that they may find their home, as it were, with those for whom they were purchased. Not so that they might be suspended in midair, as if Christ could put away God's enmity against someone only for that person to revive that enmity and frustrate the work of Christ through his stubborn unbelief. No, that would be to say that man's sovereign unbelief ties the hands of an impotent Savior. But Christ is the sovereign Savior. We are those without strength and helpless. Romans eight thirty two, one of the most precious verses really in all the scriptures says, He, the Father who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, if God has done the greater thing for us by giving Christ over to death to purchase our reconciliation, he will not fail to do the lesser thing for us, which is to give us all those things, that very reconciliation that Christ purchased for us by his death. And so all, the, all those who are reconciled to God through the death of his son will indeed receive the reconciliation. <clears throat> if that weren't the case, if there were some for whom Christ purchased reconciliation who didn't eventually come to receive that reconciliation, that would be to say that Christ's work of reconciliation was a failure. That yes, perhaps he did die to make reconciliation possible or potential, but he failed to bring about the end goal that he intended in dying for his people, which is what? First Timothy 1.15, to save sinners. And so, summing up then, Scripture teaches that the nature of reconciliation is that it is the effectual work of God through the death of Christ, whereby he removes the ground of the enmity or hostility between God and man, namely sin, And we see that the accomplishment of that work 2,000 years ago infallibly secures its application such that everyone for whom it is purchased eventually receives it. And then when man does receive this work of reconciliation, his relationship to God is transformed from alienation to communion and fellowship. And so given that that is what reconciliation is, what implications does the nature of reconciliation have for the extent of reconciliation? And that brings us to the second major point of the sermon, namely the particularity of reconciliation. The particularity of reconciliation. And we find, as we have in our studies of expiation and propitiation, that the reconciliation that Christ accomplished on the cross is particular, particular and not universal in its extent. Christ has reconciled the elect alone, and not all without exception. How do we see that? Well, first of all, if we recognize that application necessarily follows accomplishment, that everyone reconciled through the death of Christ eventually receives that reconciliation in time, well then we just need to ask ourselves, do all without exception receive reconciliation? Are all without exception eventually restored to fellowship and communion with God? No. We are not universalists, as much as we might wish that all without exception would finally be saved, that no one would go to hell. We remember once again Jesus own words in Matthew 7:13 that the gate is wide And the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. As sad as it is to think about, there are those who perish in their sins and remain forever at enmity with God. And so, if everyone for whom Christ dies is reconciled by his death, and if everyone thus reconciled eventually receives that reconciliation in conversion, and if not everyone receives reconciliation in conversion, then we simply can't escape the conclusion that Christ does not reconcile all without exception, but only those who are finally saved, who are the elect alone. You say, but wait a second. Doesn't Paul use explicitly universal language with respect to the scope of Christ's reconciliation? I mean, 2 Corinthians five nineteen says that God was, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And there are those who say that since Christ is said to reconcile the world, and yet not all without exception are finally saved, that therefore reconciliation must be redefined as something which is ineffectual, that there is such a thing as non-salvific reconciliation. Well, there, there are a couple ways to respond to that. First, if you were with us for our last sermon on propitiation, you remember that the term world in scripture does not always mean every individual who has ever lived in the world without exception. We mentioned that in 1 John 5:19, John says, "We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one." But we noted that as much as the whole world sounds genuinely universal, it doesn't include the Apostle John or the believers that he's writing to because in the immediately preceding verse, 1 John five eighteen, he says the evil one does not touch the one who is born of God. And so how can all without exception lie within Satan's power if Satan cannot touch the children of God? Obviously world doesn't always mean all without exception. And we can multiply these kinds of examples. In John 8, 26, Jesus says, the things which I heard from the Father, these I speak to the world. But of course, Jesus hadn't spoken those things to every individual alive in the world at that time. Speaking to the world in that verse means he spoke openly to many people in Israel. In John twelve nineteen, the Pharisees complain, the world has gone after him. But again, that doesn't mean everyone who had ever lived, or again, even any, everyone who was alive at that time had gone after Jesus to believe in Jesus. They certainly didn't. No, the world refers to a large number of people in Israel in that verse. In the Gospel of John 15, 18, and 19, Jesus told his disciples, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, and because of this, the world hates you. And so there, the world can't include the people of Christ and so can't refer to all without exception. Sometimes it does, but not always. All that to say, in the first place, the presence of a universal term like all or world doesn't automatically refer to all without exception. Second, if we did read world in 2 Corinthians 5.19 to mean that Christ reconciles all without exception, we'd be forced to modify the definition of reconciliation beyond biblical recognition. And those who hold to a universal atonement admit that. One commentator says that for his interpretation of universal reconciliation to stand, quote, the common understanding of reconciliation must be broadened. Well, well, yes, indeed it does. For universal reconciliation to stand, reconciliation must be broadened to include those who are not finally reconciled. It has to be redefined as ineffectual. Listen to how another commentator puts it. Quote, God and Christ appeal to unbelievers to accept the fact that reconciliation has been accomplished and to complete the action by taking down the barrier on their side, the barrier of pride and disobedience and hatred of God. Now, did you hear that? In order to support universal reconciliation, Reconciliation can't be an objective work of God accomplished through Christ's finished work on the cross. It must be redefined as something that has been begun by God, which must be completed by man. Did you hear the quote? Unbelievers must, quote, complete the action of reconciliation by taking down the barrier on their side. But given that Scripture characterizes the atonement itself as a work of reconciliation, that is nothing short of suggesting that the atonement itself must be completed by man. Man becomes his own co-savior. And that is horrible news for you and me who know ourselves to be in no condition to cooperate in our own salvation. If reconciliation was not a finished work of Christ through his death, as Romans 5 says, but has to be completed by the unbeliever's decision to believe, well then you couldn't avoid casting Christ's work as ineffectual and incomplete until it's granted its efficacy by the sinner's faith. And again, that's what they say. Another commentator writes that reconciliation does not become effective for the sinner until he believes. But that is not an efficacious accomplishment. That is not a perfect redemption. That is not the atonement of which we sing and for which we praise God. We are not reconciled to God, as I said before, by our faith, but by Christ's death. Guys, Christ is our Savior, not our faith. And I love what the nineteenth century Scottish minister Horatius Bonner said about this. He said this Faith is not our Savior. It was not faith that was born at Bethlehem and died on Golgotha for us. It was not faith that loved us and gave itself for us, that bore our sins in its own body on the tree, that died and rose again for our sins. Faith is one thing, and the Saviour is another. Let us not confound them, nor ascribe to a poor, imperfect act of man that which belongs exclusively to the Son of the living God. Bonner goes on and says, Faith is precious, but its preciousness is not its own. Its preciousness is the preciousness of him to whom it links us. You see, faith is glorious Praise God we can be saved by faith, by the empty hand of faith and not at all by our own doings. But faith is only glorious because it is an empty hand. Because it joins us to the object of our faith. Faith means nothing except for what our faith is placed in. And the object of our faith is not our faith. The object of our faith is Christ, our substitute. And so we ought not to read world as absolutely universal in 2 Corinthians 5. For a third reason that that's so is that we can look at 2 Corinthians 5 itself and find that there is good reason to read the world in that text, that Christ reconciles to God, to refer not to all without exception, but to all without distinction throughout the world. And that's because of the relationship between reconciliation and justification. Back in Romans 5, 9, don't turn there, turn to 2 Corinthians 5, but in Romans 5, 9 and 10, you can observe the parallelism between the two. Listen to it. Romans five ten. we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Romans 5, 9, having now been justified by his blood. And so this relationship between reconciliation and justification is underscored in 2 Corinthians five nineteen, where Paul defines the substance of God's reconciling work in Christ as, quote, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, on what righteous basis can God not count sinners' trespasses against them? Well, on the basis of verse 21, he counted those trespasses against Christ in our place. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the doctrine of justification. The term counting in verse 19 is the Greek word logizomai, which is the word that Paul uses all throughout Romans 3, 4, and 5 to speak about the non-imputation of sin and the imputation of righteousness that is at the heart of the doctrine of Justification. Paul says in Romans 4, 6, the justified one is the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And credits is the same word logizomai for counting in 2 Corinthians 5. Two verses later in Romans 4, 8 says the justified one is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Again, same word, Lagitsamai. So God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. How? By justifying the world, by not counting the world's trespasses against them, on the basis of making Christ to be sin on their behalf. And so, if reconciliation consists in justification, in the non imputation of sin, in the imputation of sin to a substitute, and in the imputation of righteousness to the sinner, well, then we can't avoid saying that reconciliation and justification are coextensive. Both benefits of the cross. Are accomplished in the same act and extend, therefore, to the same number of people. No one is reconciled who is not also eventually justified. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. But whose trespasses does God not count against them? All without exception? Are all without exception justified? Do all without exception have their sins imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness imputed to them so that they're declared righteous in the sight of God? No. And so we must ask of those who would hold to a doctrine of universal reconciliation, if reconciliation consists in justification, and if not all without exception are justified, then how can all without exception be reconciled? The answer is they can't rather than radically redefining reconciliation to fit an absolutely universal sense of the term world. It's better much better to let reconciliation mean what it always means and interpret world as it's often defined in scripture all without distinction throughout the world. Paul is emphasizing that the expansiveness of Christ's work of reconciliation extends to those actually reconciled throughout the whole world, not to indicate that it extends to every individual who's ever lived, even those who remain unreconciled, alienated from God throughout all eternity. Now that's 2 Corinthians 5. Turn back to Colossians 1, which leads me to a second text that's often marshaled in support of a universal reconciliation, and that's Colossians 1, 19 and 20, where Paul says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So you see they they say so you see that there God reconciles all things through the blood of his cross. But because they grant that not everyone will be saved, that there will be some who remain alienated from God from all eternity or for all eternity precisely because the ground of their enmity hasn't been done away with, what they do is they propose an even more radical redefinition of reconciliation. Since all things is taken to refer to every person without exception, these interpreters argue that even those suffering in the eternal lake of fire are, in a sense, quote, reconciled to and, quote, at peace with God. You say, no, 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 that can't be. You've read them wrong. All right, listen to what Bruce Ware uh, writes. He says, "This reconciliation must be one which includes a sense in which those outside of Christ consigned to eternal punishment in hell are at peace with God." End quote. You say, what sense does that make? Well, where defines this peace and reconciliation as no longer rebelling against God, because their rebellion against him has been quote crushed and is ended. Gary Schultz, who holds this view as well, writes, quote, the non-elect in hell will be reconciled in that they are no longer able to rebel against God because they'll acknowledge Jesus for who he is. So they're arguing that in concert with Philippians 2, Paul means in Colossians 1 the same, things, the same thing he means in Philippians two ten and 11 when he says, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, so here are those under the earth in hell, reconciled to God, they claim by virtue of their confession as Jesus as Lord. but it must be said plainly that this is just not what reconciliation means in the first place, being at peace with God being at peace with God is utterly incompatible with suffering under his wrath. We can all understand that, can't we? Ro- what does Paul say in Romans 5, 1? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace is received through justification, not in condemnation. Christ establishes peace Ephesians 2.14 says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, by canceling out, Colossians 2.14, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees that was hostile to us. It says, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's how peace is accomplished. When the law, when the sting of the law, that is sin, is no longer applicable in our case because our sin has been taken away. And so Revelation 20 pictures eternal hell as a place where, believe, where unbelievers will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Revelation 14, the smoke of whose torment goes up forever and ever, who have no rest day and night. I mean, the eternal absence of rest cannot be reconciled, no pun intended, with the concept of peace. In fact, God says, Isaiah 48, Isaiah 57, there is no peace for the wicked. And so friends, it's a contradiction to say that the damned experience this peace while suffering under the very hostility and enmity that Christ abolished by his reconciling death. Secondly, it's not true to say that the conquered enemies who confess Jesus as Lord, like we see in Philippians 2, are no longer rebels. Mark 1.24, the demon demon who possessed the man in Capernaum cried out, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this demon acknowledged Jesus for who he was. He confessed that Jesus was Lord, the Holy One of God. And yet the text gives no indication that the demon ceased his rebellion or a disregard for Christ. In the same way, while it's true that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, for those who are under the earth, who are the damned, the demons, and the devil, Such a confession will not be the adoring praise of a worshiper at long last, nor the subdued acknowledgement that, well, yeah, I guess I was wrong about him. No, it'll be the despairing admission of a conquered enemy, bowing in resentful defeat to the sovereign king whose power he can no longer deny. And that might very well lead to greater rebellion and greater disregard for their ultimate enemy who pours out his wrath upon them without mercy. Now the only sense in which the rebellion of Christ's enemies is diminished in hell is that it's contained in such a way that they can no longer harm God's people or revel in their sin without consequence. But friends, that is not reconciliation. That is banishment. That is alienation. It's not the peace that Christ purchased with his blood. It's the removal of all hope of any peace. And then a third response to that notion that Colossians 1 is speaking of a, a universal reconciliation. Notice the difference between Colossians 1:20 and Philippians 2:10 and 11. In Philippians, where there's no mention of the term reconciliation, Paul speaks of three categories of beings whose knees will bow and whose tongues will confess. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In Colossians 1, there are only two, both the things in heaven and the things on earth. And these are the objects of Christ's reconciliation. But do you notice what's absent? In Colossians 1, there is no reference to the things under the earth like there is in Philippians 2. So what do you see? the damned are in philippians 2 but reconciliation is not reconciliation is in colossians 1 but the damned are not what's the reason for that because in colossians paul is speaking of the time after the enemies of christ have been sent to their judgment after they have been quote cast out into the outer darkness matthew 8:12 after they have been put outside of the new Jerusalem, Revelation twenty two fifteen, 15. With the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons. And the murderers and idolaters. And everyone who loves and practices lying. You see, this realm of existence outside the new heavens and the new earth. Is the outer darkness that is, quote, under the earth. It is a real place. But it's not part of the new heavens and the new earth where all things have been reconciled to God through Christ's blood. So this means the all things of Colossians 1 is explicitly limited to the things on earth and the things in heaven. Describing only those who stand in a right relationship to God through Christ. Because those who are under the earth have already been removed in judgment. The enemies of Christ are not the objects of the reconciliation of Colossians 1 because they are not part of the all things that remain in the new reality after God has cast the wicked out into outer darkness. Say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like all things though. That sounds like some things. Is it legitimate to speak of all things in a way that excludes those who are finally damned? And the answer is yes, there is biblical precedent for describing this new creation reality. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. <coughs> there is biblical precedent for describing this new creation reality with universal terminology while nevertheless intending to exclude those who perish eternally. So, here at the close of Isaiah's prophecy, God speaks in verse 22 of the new heavens and the new earth that will endure in his presence. Of that new creation, he says, verse 23, and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind, literally all flesh, will come to bow down before me. In Colossians 1, all things are reconciled to God through Christ. In Isaiah 66, all flesh will worship God in the new heavens and the new earth. But look at verse 24. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind, to all flesh. So the worshipers of God and the new creation are described in universal terms. All mankind. And yet there's a reference to the damned men who are distinguished and excluded from all mankind. And so just as all mankind doesn't include the men whose corpses will be an abhorrence to all mankind in Isaiah 66, neither does the all things in Colossians 1.20 refer to those who are under the earth. the, The rebels just won't be part of the all things which fill the new heavens and the new earth. They are outside in the darkness. Say, wait, i got one more objection. Doesn't the all things in Colossians 1 refer to the creation? If you know a little Greek, don't you realize that these are in the neuter gender? It refers to things and not people. Doesn't it mean that Christ's atonement extends beyond the people of God, even to the cosmos? And so isn't the reconciliation universal in that sense? Well, in response to that, it must be said that an atonement that has cosmic results is not the same thing as an atonement that has, that has been accomplished for the cosmos. In Colossians 1.20, Paul isn't teaching that the creation is the object of Christ's reconciling work so that we should say Christ died for the, the, the creation. Christ died for the trees and the mountains. No, Paul's not teaching. Uh, he, rather, he is teaching that reconciliation is for his people who will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, and therefore that reconciliation has consequences for the whole creation. And that makes sense when you consider the relationship between man and the creation, both with respect to sin and the eradication of the curse of sin. And I would if, you, if you would turn with me to one final text in Romans 8. Romans 8, 22 says what we all experience every day of our lives. This creation groans under the curse of sin. We know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. But creation has no sin of its own. Right? The creation was cursed because of man's sin. That's what God said to Adam in Genesis 3, 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. It was because of the sin of man, Romans 8 verse 20, that the creation was subjected to futility. The creation isn't morally culpable because it bears thorns and thistles and yields produce only by intense labor from man. Verse 20 again, it was not willingly subjected to futility. It was cursed by God himself as a result of human sin. But creation wasn't cursed without a plan for its redemption. Look at verse 21. The one who subjected it did so in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. But here's the key. The redemption and the renewal of the creation does not come about because it is the direct object of a universal atonement. No, Just as the curse of creation followed the curse of sinful man, so also the redemption of creation will follow the redemption of man. Look at verse 19. The creation waits eagerly, not for an atonement for its sins. It waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, the creation will be set free from its slavery to the corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul is teaching that just as the creation was cursed in order to be a suitable habitation for God's curse upon, upon Adam's posterity, so also will the creation be redeemed in order to be a suitable habitation for God's blessing upon the new humanity recreated in Christ the last Adam. And this new humanity is not inclusive of all human beings, still less the animals or the inanimate creation, but rather it consists of God's people alone. That means that the ground of the cosmic renewal of Colossians 1 isn't a universal provision made possible by Christ's atonement. No, it is the consummated redemption of a particular group of people, the sons of God the sons of God. And so we have beheld from God's word both the nature and the particularity of the reconciliation that Christ accomplished in his atoning death on the cross. And especially for you who have not been with us, those visiting with us this morning, why do we go through all this? Why do I state arguments, quote authors, respond to them in detail? Because I want to protect in your own minds, in your own ability to Meditate upon the cross, especially this week as we come toward Good Friday and Easter Sunday, to sing the songs that we sing in the gathered assembly and sing them with a heart informed by truth. I want you to be able to see that Christ's redemption, his reconciliation, is a perfect redemption and reconciliation. That we can't say that it was accomplished for those to whom it will never arrive in its efficacy. Because then we have to shift the burden back onto ourselves to do something in addition to what Christ has done to make it count for us. And there is no good news there. Could you imagine if somebody said, hey, good news, God has reconciled you through the death of his son. Christ died for you. But you may end up in eternity in hell forever. You'll be reconciled in some sense You'll be at peace with God in some sense, but but you'll be in hell. I don't need that reconciliation. That reconciliation you can keep. That reconciliation is not worthy of the glory of what Christ accomplished when he looked up on the cross on Good Friday and said, it is finished. It is finished is our ark, believer, it is it is our pillow it is our bed of rest because if it's not finished if it's only begun and has to be completed by man woe be unto us there is no gospel and so you say, oh, you know, you Calvinists, you, you, you just care about the particulars of doctrine. You like to say Christ didn't die for people. You want to get into the minutia. No, I want to protect the cross from, from having its efficacy robbed from it. From having, I want to protect believers from having the ground of your assurance taken out from under you. And what sounds noble, hey, it's for everybody, winds up meaning it's for Nobody. It accomplishes nothing for nobody. Those somebodies have to finish the accomplishment, have to accomplish it, complete it, and they're the reason, ultimately, that they go to heaven. That is not the gospel. That is not good news. The good news is Christ has finished a perfectly efficacious redemption. Unbeliever, friend, who you, you're here with us, you're, you're not in Christ, you're a stranger to God's grace, what do I have to offer you? Not, like I said before, an alley-oop pass that you've got a slam dunk. I offer you a perfectly finished work of reconciliation that does stand now to be received. You must bow the knee. You must turn away from your sins. You must confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what that'll be? Even that'll be the gift of God to you. And so you say, well, what can I do if I don't want to do that? I I haven't received the gift. You can pray. You can bow your face on the ground and say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Make me a partaker of that reconciliation. Grant me the faith and the repentance that lays hold of Christ, this great substitute, this great reconciler, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be clean. Turn from your sin. Put your trust, not in your own works, but in the work of Christ who's lived in in the place of sinners, who's died in the place of sinners, as we'll celebrate next week, who is risen in the place of sinners, stating that all is accomplished if you'll only come. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the completeness of our redemption. We despair of ever saying, doing, even thinking anything that would, suggests that we have any part to play in completing our own salvation. We ask that you would inform the the, the minds of the people of God so that we might worship you in a way that you deserve, that we might not have false notions of Christ and his cross, false notions of ourselves and our salvation, which would inevitably lead to diminished worship, to hindered communion, we pray that we would have unhindered communion, that we would sit at the seat of your table, reconciled as friends, with a, a, a perfectly true understanding of what you have accomplished on our behalf. And I do pray that those who are here within the sound of my voice, not yet brought in to the family of God, not yet seated at his table, that you would grant the sovereign gifts of repentance and faith and grant the, the miracle of regeneration take place even this moment, that you would have them receive the reconciliation that was purchased for them so many years ago. And as we go to the main service, we pray that you would inflame our hearts with worship once again, open our minds to receive the word afresh again. And this week, that you would fix our eyes upon the Savior who has gone to Calvary for us and who has risen from the grave in victory. Prepare us for Resurrection Sunday all throughout this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.